morning. I thought there was a cup holder. Is that what this is? Really? Wow, I need a smaller cup. Okay, that's for a bottle of water. That's okay. Well, I'm just going to adjust. We're just going to adjust. Oh, what a great song uh, to come in on as we're um, taking week two to look at this section on love, um, a section that uh, is kind of both a, a microscope as well as a mirror for us. Um, and we think about the, the phrase that we find in 1 John 4, God is love. And we think about our culture today that has taken that, that little snippet and kind of defined it in a lot of uh, different ways of what it means for God to be love. And the amazing thing about this section of Scripture is that God actually defines for us what love looks like, what love is. And so when we look at God being love, uh, we, we look no further than his own definition. And so we get a little bit of a, of a microscope feel when we come to this passage because we get to see the inner workings of what it means to have a God uh, who defines love, a God who can be defined by love. Yet it's also a mirror. I don't know if you guys felt that at all last week. I know I felt that last week as we looked into that first section of uh, of these verses that Stephen covered. <clears throat> In fact, it took about a grand total of five minutes uh, before the Holy Spirit was just kind of lovingly nudging me to, to show me a situation where just before I came into the service, I was anything but uh, patient and kind. And the way that I had treated a brother, I was, I was running around trying to get some stuff before I ran up for announcements. If you ever want to see me as just a horrible person, find me 10 minutes before I give announcements. I will preach for four hours, but doing five minutes of announcements, I just lose fluids. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a miserable experience. And so uh, my brother came up to me during that time and wanted to discuss something with me, and I was trying to multitask, and I, I wasn't patient. I wasn't kind. I was, I was rude and unloving. And, uh, and, and now he gets back at me because he's controlling my slides today. And so, well, it all comes full circle. Be careful who you don't love. But, uh, no, not me and Dutch there, Mr. Tifo. But, uh, it was, it was really awesome because I got to go up to my brother after the service and, uh, and the way that he responded to me was, uh, with a, with a heart of love. But when we look at this section of scripture, man, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but there's just so many things where I go down and I'm like, man, my love. I mean, that, that was last Sunday. That was, a, that was a little snippet of one day of one week out of this life of this person who struggles to love. And truthfully, if you were to walk beside me through my days on any given day, you would just be like, ooh, Matt, yeah, verse 4. Ooh, Matt, yeah, verse 5. Ooh, yeah, verse 4 and 5. Ooh, yeah, uh, 6. Hey, Matt, can we, just, can we just circle back and reread that? Let's do it in the Greek. Maybe that's what we need. Um, but no, as we as we look at the mirror of these 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 passages, it's it's beauty to see, it's it's beautiful to see the microscope. It's beautiful to look at it and just be like, man, this is the inner workings of who our God is, and it's so beautiful. But when you flip the script and you say, no, this is now how we are called to love, that's a hard image to look at when I look at myself. 
And I'm sure a lot of you feel the same way, and yet uh, it's in those moments that we, again, turn back to the microscope and we see the beauty of who our God is, our patient and kind and long-suffering God as he walks with us, as we stumble through with him our ability to love one another. And so we have, we have two more verses to look at today, two more verses um, to help give definition to who our God is and the way that he loves us and also how we are called to love. And so we're going to look at that together. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. God, I thank you so much for your love for us. And I know it's something that we say often. I know it's something that we think about um, and sing about. But uh, as we really get a chance to dive into your word today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our eyes to be able to see the full beauty, the full scope of your love for us. And in the way in which you love us in every scenario, in every situation, and your love is just a constant, it's always there in every circumstance. And God, I pray that through that, as we look at your love, that we would be able to uh, look in, in, in the mirror of this passage and see the ways in which we don't oftentimes reflect you. We don't, we aren't even looking to reflect you. And I pray that we wouldn't be met with, with condemnation or guilt or just a, a heavy weight that we walk out here and think, well, why try? But instead, I pray that your spirit would gently lead us towards the path of loving like you love because you first loved us. Thank you for the way in which you empower us to be what we cannot be in of ourselves. Thank you for giving us the ability to love in ways that causes the world to look at us and see you. So Father, use your text today to draw our eyes to you and to the ways you are calling us to reflect you. We pray pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have two verses today. We'll start in verse 6. I believe we're on page 961, but I'm sure you already have your bookmark in at 1 Corinthians 13, because that's where we were last week. So let's just pick up right there. Uh, Starting in verse 6, Paul says, "It, It being love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This word for wrongdoing, uh, adikia, I'm sure those of you who know Greek know that that's probably not how you say it, but uh, we're going to do that because it's more fun for me to say it that way. Um, adikia, it is a word that is, uh, these two words are oftentimes pitted against each other. Um, adikia and aletheia being true. So adikia is um, this word that represents unrighteousness wickedness, wrongdoing, injustice. And aletheia is oftentimes just just meant, uh, when we see it in Scripture, as the ways of God. God's word, his ways, the way in which he would call us to live, the way in which he is, and the way in which he calls us to. And so we have these two things pitted against each other to create this contrast, Right? This contrast between this world, this kingdom, this way of doing things, and all that it represents, and God's ways, God's kingdom, God's way of doing things in accordance to his truth, his word, his character. Now we see these two things pitted against the other. Paul does it uh, in the book of Romans, uh, Romans one eighteen states, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their adikia, 
suppress the aletheia. By their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So again, we always go back to Romans 1.18 is that, um, is that total depravity passage, right? That just shows men who have totally rejected the truth. They've rejected God. They've rejected His ways. And they are walking in the flow of this world versus one who walks in the truth of God and His ways. So we see these two things pitted against each other. And again, in Romans 2.8, where it says, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, same word, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So again, we get this picture of kind of the, the river of this world and all that comes with it flowing in one direction. Right? We, we talk about the, the current of our culture, or the current of this world. Well, imagine with me all that entails in this world. Or in this word, rather, it's, it's wickedness. It's injustice. It's unbelievable amounts of wrongdoing. Everything that we look at the world and see, wow, that is not a reflection of God. That's what's caught in this river, in this world. And standing against it, walking against the current of that stands God's truth. His words, His ways, His way of living, His his life that He is reflecting, the life in which He calls us to live. That's what Paul is saying. And in this, he says, in the river of this world, going this way, all of that wickedness, all of that wrongdoing, all of that injustice, he says, love for the believer finds no joy in any of this. That we do not look at this world, its ways, and find joy any joy. But instead, we are to find our joy, to find our ultimate joy in the truth. Your first point on your outline um, is that our ultimate reason to rejoice is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's because in John fourteen six we see truth personified, right? Jesus says, I am the way. I am the, I am the way cutting through the river of this world and all of its wrongdoing and all of its injustice and all of its wickedness and evil. I am the way. Follow me. I stand against it. I am the way, the truth, the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. Beloved, we find our love in rejoicing in the truth and rejoicing in the person of Jesus Christ and fixing our eyes on Him. I believe that's why it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings, too clo- which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so I think it's it's so pivotal for us as believers as we we look to love, we look to Jesus. As we look to rejoice in truth, we look to the one who is truth, into his ways, into what he said, into how he lived. And ultimately, unless we know Christ, unless we have fixed our eyes on him, there's no way for us to truly rejoice in the truth of God. Because truth came in the form of a person. And so for those of us who are believers, that call from, uh, from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, that is a continuous call for us. 
to fix our eyes on Jesus, to fix our eyes on God's word, to fix our eyes on his ways and to find our ultimate joy in his kingdom, in his truth. And for those of you who are here today, this is just a, um, a brief invitation, but for those of you who are here today or watching online who do not know Jesus in that way, your eyes are fixated on this world. You are lost in the current of this world. We have to tell you, the end of that river flows to eternal destruction, separated from God in a place of torment. But hope has come. God's truth has come in the person of Jesus. One who is the truth loved you enough to die for you, to die for your wickedness, to die for your wrongdoing, to die for every single way in which you and me reflect the ways of this world. And he offers you new life. He offers you eternal life. If you'd simply call out to him and confess your sin and place your faith in the life, death, and resurrection that he came and died for you, then eternal life can be yours. And you can begin that same walk that many of us here today are walking with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Looking to Him and looking to His Spirit to give us the power to walk in His ways. And so I invite you today, if you've never done that, if you're online and you've you've never reached out to Jesus and made Him your Lord and Savior, come talk to one of us after the service. Contact us at email at harborshores.org. We want to help you know what it means to begin that life changing relationship with Jesus. And yet I think there's another application from this text as it pertains to the way we as believers are called to love one another. Because this verse is also a picture of how we are to love one another, right? This reveals to us God's, uh, God's love, His ways. It's a, it's a reflection of who He is as his totally holy otherness, totally separate from the evil of this world. It shows us who God is, but it also shows us the way we are called to love one another and the things that we rejoice in or find our joy in. So so if your brother or sister in Christ is the victim of some kind of wrongdoing, of some kind of evil, some kind of injustice, or if your brother or sister in Christ gives in to the wiles of sin and commits some kind of evil, some kind of wrongdoing, some kind of injustice, we are to take no joy in that wrongdoing. We are not to rejoice or take any joy in that wrongdoing. Joy that could be derived from maybe reducing their circumstances to a juicy piece of gossip. Who doesn't love having the dirt to dish? Right? It's just, ooh, I got a good story and I'm getting together with my guys or with my girls and I got something to share. This is going to be... There's joy in that. And we're called not to have it. Joy that comes from thinking of all the ways you and your immense wisdom maybe would have avoided the current plight that they find themselves in. Tell me you don't find some sort of joy and satisfaction where you're like, oh, that happened to so-and-so and you just kind of, huh, what a fool. It doesn't surprise me that they find themselves in that place. I never would have found myself in that place, for I know the right way in which to walk. And I am so much wiser than they are. They'll learn someday, maybe, to be as wise as I am, but uh, certainly not today. <laughs> no, 
we are not called to find our joy in wrongdoing of another, wrongdoing happening to a brother. Or maybe, I know this is kind of a little bit more dark, a little bit more sinister, but honestly, as we live in community with one another, a quasi-community at times, uh, sometimes we find joy in watching a brother or sister get what we feel is coming to them, Right? When you see someone fall flat on their face or where you see someone get ran over by uh, just some kind of oncoming set of circumstances, there's a piece of us where uh, when we're at our most honest and at our worst, there's a lot of times when we look at a brother or sister in Christ and say, yeah, well, kind of had it coming, right? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I can, I can think of something like that happening to, uh, you know, to, to maybe a few other people that I'd... You know, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe they're a person where you just would kind of like that to happen to them. Teach them a lesson. Or to maybe knock some sense into their heads. And a lot of times we can take that posture of finding some kind of joy and satisfaction and, and, and pain and hurt and wrongdoing done to somebody who we're actually called to love. We are called to take no joy in unrighteousness, wrongdoing, wickedness, or injustice. This applies to brothers and sisters who you may not know. And so even if you uh, differ politically from your brother or sister who has experienced injustice, or if you differ differ theologically from the Christian leader or Christian institution that has uh, come in the news and come under fire, or uh, if you could see the sin that was coming to that particular brother from, from a mile away, and yet relationally you are kind of a mile away from that person, we are still called to not find any joy any room to rejoice in wrongdoing. And it's sad because a lot of times we think of this as uh, something that we do in close proximity, but I think because of the age of the internet and the age of uh, close proximity being that I can see on that side of the world with a click of a button or into that church's problems or into that Christian leader's uh, current set of circumstances, we feel the freedom to click, type, and post our thoughts, our feelings on whatever the situation is, maybe before we actually know what's going on. I mean, if you've ever read the comment section and anything that happens online to a a lot of times, you know, if you, if you click and read the profiles of some of these people, they're, they're professing believers. I know none of us would do that here where we would click on the, uh, on the story and comment or click on the profile and comment to somebody who we don't know, that would just be foolishness, right? We, we wouldn't do that here. We teach the word here, so we wouldn't do that. Uh, but, but still, like, it's, it's a challenge to ourselves to, to close our mouths in situations where wrongdoing has happened and not, not feel the freedom to blast, not feel the freedom to speak into things that we have been called to find no joy in. But instead, we're called to rejoice in the truth. Second point on your outline, rejoicing in evil done to or by a brother reveals a heart that is far from God. This type of behavior can really only be described as hate and hating a brother. John gives a really stern warning in 1 John 4, 20-21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Proverbs 24:17 emphasizes this same point but from a slightly different angle. It says, "Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles." And if this is the common courtesy that scripture calls us to give our enemy, how much more so are we supposed to give it to a brother who has come into wrongdoing? Before this section, Paul speaks at length to the Corinthians about how followers of Jesus are one body, unified in Christ. And I'm just trying to imagine, I'm trying to imagine any part of my body. I'll pick my feet. I don't really like my feet. I'm trying to imagine there being a day, there being a, a situation, there being an object that I, that I drop on my toe and I just, I, I, I don't immediately rush to it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, who is just going to drop something that's 50 pounds right on your toe? And I wear flip-flops a lot, right? So 50 pounds, I, I don't have the, the caterpillars or whatever they are, right? That's going to do some damage to my tootsies. And I'm just trying to imagine dropping something on my foot. I'm just kind of thinking like, well, yeah, that was a stupid foot anyway. You know, it's stinkier than my right foot grows hair in weird places. I don't like the way the toenails look or the way that they're cut. Always gives me hangnails. You know what? Serves that toe right. Really does. It's a dumb foot anyway. Should have been 75 pounds, you know? And if that foot ain't careful, it's going to happen again. It's all about that. Foot. No, what? Guys, what, what do we do instinctively when any part of the body is hurt? We, ooh, right? We rush to it. We rush to it. And Paul says the same thing in the, in the previous section. He says, when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And yet we've kind of developed this mentality within Christendom, whether it be because uh, there's a church on every corner or half a billion denominations or whatever. We've kind of developed this mindset that when the body suffers over there, doesn't affect me. Doesn't really affect me at all. I can still do what I do and that person can come under fire. And you know what? Click comment post. Who really cares? Beloved, we are unified in Christ with Him as our head. A wise man once said, <laughs> Did you guys miss something? Are you heresy checking? What, what are we doing back there? What are we, this is really making me nervous. You got, do you want me to go back? I don't. Uh, fun with technology. <laughs> but in the same way, um, in the same way that we would rush to a, a pinky toe or an elbow or a finger or whatever, in the same way we are called to not, not, not separate from, not stand back and scoff, not to a member of the body who is hurting, but we are called to rush towards them in love. To rush, towards, to rush towards them in love. If they've sinned, what does the Bible say? Ephesians 4.32 says that we should move towards them with kindness and tenderheartedness and offer forgiveness if we've been wronged, if necessary. We reach down and we lift them out of the dirt of their circumstances and call them to a different life free of their sin, as John 8 shows us with Jesus and how he treats the prostitute. 
We seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, as Galatians 6, 1 says. And we encourage them to, just as we read, cast off the weight of their sin and run forward with their eyes fixed on Jesus. This is how we are called as a body to respond to a body who has fallen into wrongdoing. When a member is hurting, we rush towards them. If wrong has been done to a brother or sister in Christ, we move towards them and help them bear the burden of their circumstances that they're now facing, as, as Galatians 6.2 says. And if we are not in a position to care for that member of the body, if they are outside of our jurisdiction and we know not their circumstances or, or what they are currently facing, then we keep our mouths free of corrupt talk. And speak only what is grace-giving grace and uplifting, as Ephesians 4.29 calls us to. In short, love means finding our joy in personifying the truth of God instead of reveling in the brokenness of a brother. And I know I'm guilty of it. I don't know if you are guilty of it. But if we are truly going to be a people who does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth, then we have to be willing in every single circumstances to personify that truth. To not stand back and, and cast judgment before we know the full scope of the situation. To not stand back and watch a brother who's bleeding out and, and, and walk on the other side of the road. These things have been condemned by God himself in his word. Instead, we are called to rush to that member of the body that is hurting and to offer the same care and compassion and concern that Christ portrayed for us when he came to us and walked amongst us. Let's take a look at verse 7. As Paul wraps a bow on his definition of love, Verse 7 says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Here we have a beautiful conclusion to this section uh, on love. A love that protects and assumes the best. A love that is not easily discouraged, but fights forward to the end. This is the picture of the love that we are called to have for one another. And Paul is kind of creating a... uh, a paradigm of love in this verse, a, a process of love. And uh, it's important to know what he is doing here and what he's not doing here because I think we can look at a verse that says the word all and take it to mean all in all circumstances. And I think that can uh, create a little bit of confusion for us. It's important for us to know that uh, Paul is using hyperbole here. He's really trying to draw on a point of the the grandiose nature of God's love and the love that we have been called to have as believers. And so he's using this far-reaching language saying all things four times to really draw our eyes to the, the, the bigness of this love. But again, what has Paul said previously to define love? Obviously, if we look back uh, just one verse earlier, we're not rejoicing in wrongdoing, right? And so that's going to kind of set some parameters around what all things that we are that we are bearing, that we are believing in, that we are hoping for, that we are enduring. 
And as you look at the things that we are called to cast off, if you, if you look at the things that we are called to confront in Scripture, if you look at the whole of the people that we are called to be, it becomes clear that all things can't always mean all things. And so, very important for us to note that. Love isn't blind, deaf, and dumb, and it certainly doesn't support, encourage, or enable wickedness of this world and call it love. And so you'll oftentimes see situations of abuse where loved ones remain silent in the name of love and they won't come forward. Or a friend who says they're being a friend by turning a blind eye to a brother's sin in the name of love. Well, I don't want to make waves. I don't want to make them feel bad. I don't want to bring up how, you know, this is in total opposition to the character of God. And so, you know, we'll just keep it hidden. Or to the parent who embraces and celebrates sinful choices that their children are making and and, and deeming that as love instead of standing on truth. This is love defined on our own terms and not by God's. And so we can't look at the world's definition of love. We can't look at the definition of what we want love to be and think that it's the same thing that God says that it is. We have to be willing to look at who he is and what he says and from that find our definition. Next point on your outline, when our love enables sin, it no longer resembles God's love. Paul says it best in Romans 12, 9. He says, love must be sincere. And in the very next breath, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And so a part of our love that we offer is truth. Right? We say it, we say it, um, all the time and, and, and witnessing to people, how much, how much do we have to hate someone to not tell them what, what God's word actually says, to not tell them of their need for a savior, to not tell them truth. And the same is here. When we look at love and what it's called to be and what it's called not to be, love, you cannot separate it from God. You cannot separate it from his truth, from his ways, from his words. And so as we go into the all-encompassing nature of love, let's be careful to remember what the definition of love is. And yet I also don't want to preface it so much that as we go into this verse, we lose the beauty and the weight of what is actually being presented here. Because whenever we're like, oh, well, all doesn't mean also, all doesn't mean this, so whatever. We can get real kind of haphazard then when we figure out that there's some hyperbole there. Then we feel like we can define it any way that we want to. But again, what has God said? What has God modeled for us? When we think about who we are called to be, we look at who he was in giving up the fullness of heaven and coming to earth and walking amongst us and allowing us to drive nails through his skin and hang him on a cross. Also that he could be the one who stands walking in the opposite direction of the current of this world saying, follow me. I'm going to lead you to him. I'm the way. This is the love that Christ represents. This is the love that God embodied for us in the person of Jesus. So as we walk into this text of what love truly is, we go with him in mind. We go with a a full view of who he is and what he did because that is where we find the fullness of our definition of how we are called to love one another. Amen? 
That being said, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let's look at this this process. We'll, We'll look at each word individually and kind of what Paul is really trying to say through it and then kind of look at it as a piece of a more beautiful whole. Bearing all things. Our first thought usually is like gritting our teeth and bearing it, right? Like, okay, I'll love you, Josiah Hardacre, if I have to. Right? Like, we're just, we're just bearing all things. And believe me, when we live in a body of this many people, there are some things we have to bear. You have to bear me being up here right now. That's pretty intolerable. Um, but this word and where it stands in the order of what Paul is trying to say, uh, this word actually means covering or concealing for the sake of protecting another. I get the image in my mind as, as, as I'm really reading the fullness of what this word depicts of, of just lying over somebody as, as arrows are coming in and covering them to, to protect them from what is headed their way. And really what it gives the, what it gives the fuller picture of is when an offense has been made, when wrongdoing has been done, whether it be intentional or unintentional, known or unknown to the person who has committed it, love means we seek to cover from further harm. We bear it. We take the arrows. Because love is looking to the best interest of the other person. So rather than using the offense, using the wrong that has been done and saying, uh, they're over here. Who's got arrows out there? Anybody got arrows? We got some, we got some archers right here. This is what they did to me. Oh, you didn't hear it yet? Hold on. Facebook, Instagram. Oh, I can just connect them all. Look at that. Oh, that's great. There it is. This is what they did. Kill him. It is that vindictive form that we see in the world where one tweet that you made when you were 12 and now you're 29, sorry, you can't have that job anymore. You can't hold that medal anymore. You can't hold that position anymore. You were a 12-year-old once, so uh, we're going to now fill you full of arrows. And instead, Christian love says we bear with, we bear with these circumstances that arise when broken, unrefined, People live with incomplete, broken, unrefined people. And you know what? Offenses are made. Stuff happens. We have conversations in the foyer and, and somebody says something and it's just really quick to, oh, oh man, I can't believe they said that. Did they even know that they said that? Well, I'm going to maybe go ask this person and see if, if they think that that person meant to say it. Maybe, maybe in my small group of people, I'll just say, hey, you know, I was having a, I was kind of having a conversation with so-and-so. And they said this. Do you think that they meant them? Do you, what, uh, what do you think? What do you, like Legolas. I mean, just send the arrows, right? And instead, what we are called to do is bear with the fact that all of us are broken. Bear with the fact that none of us are going to get it right 100% of the time. And so there's a certain amount of covering. There's a certain amount of bearing with. There's a certain amount in love where we just, I got that one. Okay, yep. Oh, wow. Yep, you're, you're just a great person. But I got it. <laughs> I missed the kidney. Um, that's what we're called to be for one another. Do you see how that might be different than the love of the world? 
Do you see how somebody might look at that love? In fact, they might not. They might never see it. That's tough. Love that doesn't benefit? I need coffee. Um, That's tough. And yet it's the kind of love that we're called to have. And it makes sense if we are the ones taking intentional and unintentional bullets, taking the, the, the shrapnel that is involved in living in the bomb that is the church, that the very next thing that we're called to is to what? Love bears all, love... Rob's awake. Love bears all, love... I feel like this is a verse that we probably need to camp out at until Jesus comes back. Um, because this culture that we've fallen into, um, that's very, very passive, very polite, very, oh no, you're good, you're good, bro. Oh, are you kidding, girl? No, I didn't even hear that. <laughs> Duck lip. This culture that we've fallen into is actually really caustic because we are allowed to not believe the best about a brother and sister and totally get away with it. How many of you, when you walk into a room and you see a group of people talking on the other side of the room, your first thought when you walk in is, they're talking about me. I know they're talking about me. I should have been here 10 minutes ago. I knew you should have been there early because now I'm not here and they're talking about me and they're probably talking about how I'm late. They're probably talking about it because I'm always late. I don't try and be late, but I know that's what they're talking about. Uh. Yeah, we were texting each other the other night and uh, wait, you have a text group? You have a text group with those people? I know those people. Why am I a part of that text group? I should be a part of that text group. We are in a text group together, but you have a different text group that involves them, but not me. Why? Is it titled... All the things that Matt has done wrong? Is that the title of your text group? Huh? Matt's a jerk? Cool. That's a fun text group. I'm sure you guys have a lot of fodder, right? Think about it. Being silly, but is it really that far from the truth? How many of you struggle to believe the best about a brother and sister in a situation? Oh, well, I just know that they are. Do you? Do you really? Oh, well, there's no way that they weren't. Really? No way. 100% impossible? Because if there is even a millipercentile, then we are called to believe the best about a brother and sister in love. To not stir up what isn't already spinning. Because we are called to take arrows that really aren't ours to take, but they are in love. And we are then called to believe that the arrows that are piercing us were not meant for us, that it wasn't intentional, that it wasn't that everybody actually hates us and no one loves us and no one says good things about us. And when we move from the room, everybody immediately is like, oh, good, they're gone. Like we are called as a body to assume the best. To assume the best in a brother. To assume the best 
from a sister, to assume the best in a set of circumstances that would otherwise leave people feeling like, no, there's no way. All of the signs point to. Well, then we are called to be the sign that points away from. We are called to be another sign for someone. So when they come up to you and say, so-and-so, I know that they feel, have you talked to them? Because you may feel that if you just go and get lunch with them, that that's really not the case. Oh, I just know what they think. Do you Have you asked them? Are you just living off the assumption that they don't like you or that they're disappointed in you or that they hate you or whatever? Church, this is bile. And it thrives in the American church. How do I know this? I've been in youth ministry for almost 10 years. There is about... 1% of believing the best in youth ministry. And what is sad is that when they graduate and become adults, and I then walk amongst adults, and I am one myself, I realize, oh, it's not any better. We're awful covered awful with awful feeling when it comes to believing the best about one another. And yet the love that we are called to have, the love that I think would redeem friendships and redeem marriages and redeem relationships between brothers and sisters from across the aisle, the love that we are called to have first takes the arrow and then believes the best about where it came from or who it was headed towards or whatever the process is. Again, not to be stupid, not to be ignorant, not to be foolish when it comes to facts that are laid out or anything like that, because there are times when we are being talked about. There are times when people are saying things, and it is uncovered that there is sin in the body, and then what are we called to do? To loving confront. Or even to let it go in the name of unity. But that's a different conversation. We're talking about the unknown variables. We're talking about the unknown circumstances moving forward. And we are called as a body to believe the best in love. And yet there are times, like I said, when we are wronged. There are times when we believe the best again and again and again and again and trust has been broken again and again and again and again to the point where our relationship severs. To the point where the brokenness that is being done, the lies that are being told, the relationship that is being ruined again and again and again has reached its breaking point. And it's no longer healthy for you to associate with a brother or a sister who is habitually choosing to refuse to reflect the love of Christ. And you've tried to do the things that you have been called to do in Scripture, and yet it doesn't really seem to matter much. And they've basically told you, yep, we're done here. And it's at this juncture that we find the second half of this process of love that Paul points us to. He says, we bear all, we believe all, and then we what? We hope. Man, we hope. And at such a necessary point in the progression does it come. At a time when pessimism would tend to abound, at a time where we would tend to believe that this person or this situation is just absolutely hopeless. Our love is hopeful. 
because of where our hope rests. Because of who our God is and what he is able to do. We can have a love that is hopeful. Psalm 130, verses 5 through 7 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is, I love this, plentiful redemption. Not just redemption, but abounding, plentiful redemption. Our God is in the business of redeeming circumstances. Some of you have testimonies that were hopeless. Some of you have stories that if you laid out a play-by-play for us, we would say, wow, all hope is lost there. If you detach the name and the face from the circumstances that were, we would look at that and say, wow. What could be done but God? And that is the hope that we have in every set of circumstances because our God is plentiful when it comes to redemption. He can look at the worst of, the most broken of, the most utterly decrepit circumstances that we can think of and he can enter in and breathe life from nothing. That's who our God is. And that is why our love is hopeful. Even if it means we can't be together anymore. We can't commune together anymore. Even if it means there's probably going to be a little bit of distance between us now for, for my sake and for your sake. We do not leave them be to, to utter hopelessness, but instead our love continues to pray, continues to believe. And continues to bear with in a different way, knowing that our God is able. Does that make sense? That we are not a hopeless people. That all hope is never lost. Because in Him, all hope is eternally found. And a familiar promise that we hold on to, Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. Again, our love is hopeful because of who our God is and what He is able to do in every set of circumstances. And so we take heart. And we do not lose hope. We do not falter in prayer. Some of you have situations, you have, you have people, you have circumstances that you have been praying over for years. And you have seen no movement forward, not even incremental movement forward. And the temptation is the same temptation that someone without God faces, and that is all hope is lost. Why pray? Why believe? Why go to God? I've gone to Him before. Why keep trying? Why keep knocking on the door? Because He calls us to. Because he calls us to be a people who incessantly knock upon the door of the one who can answer and do immeasurably more than we could ever begin to ask or think. And so we have a reason to reflect a love that is countercultural to the world around us because of where our feet rest. And it is firmly within his love. It's firmly within his power. The one who redeems plentifully. The one in whom our hope is found. And lastly, in this progression, we have that our love endures all. 
And it's because of this that our love uh, is able to endure because of where our hope is found. The picture that we get of this love is, is a soldier that is holding its position as bullets whiz by. That is kind of what this, this word denotes. It's that I will not let this ground slip. I don't care if the enemy is advancing. I don't care what circumstances are surrounding me. I will endure. I will hold my ground. And this is the picture of the kind of love that we are called to have for one another. But again, we cannot have that love if our hope is not firmly rooted in the truth of God and who he is and what he did for us and what he is able to do for others. And so the only way in which this cycle works of of bearing, of believing, of hoping, of enduring is if our eyes are firmly fixed upon Christ. Of this love, Johnny Mac, John MacArthur writes, I know him. We're tight, so I can call him Johnny Mac. That wasn't disrespectful. It was a little... I'm sorry, John. Brother. Anyway. Uh, After love bears, it believes. After it believes, it hopes. And after it hopes, it endures. There is no after for endurance. For endurance is the unending climax of love. It is what we do on repeat in every situation that we are called to love in. Whether it be loving in close contact, loving on afar through prayer, we are called to have an enduring love until the moment when our Savior returns and makes all things right, makes all things beautiful, wipes away every tear, fixes everything that is broken. Our hope rests in Him until that day comes. Last point in your outline. We are called to love one another in a way that God loves us, ever-present and never-ending. And this concludes our love list. A list that allows us to see the kind of love that God has for us as His children and one that also brings definition to the kind of love that we are called to have towards one another. This was a list that as I looked at it three and a half years ago, uh, after Stephen called me to come and uh, apply for this job, it was a list that, that kept me from wanting to apply. Because as I looked in the mirror of what love is and I looked at the way in which I so often love, I thought, how could I, how could I be a shepherd of a flock? How could I be called to a position marked by love, calling to, in, in many ways, reflect the love of my shepherd when my love is so lacking? And even today, it is, uh, it's a list that causes me to run up to a brother at the end of a good sermon and say, I'm awful. <laughs> and can, I, can you please forgive me? I'm so sorry that I treated you that way. And I don't know about you, um, but I'm pretty sure that if I continue to look at this passage and not just kind of minimize it to weddings and, uh, I don't know, people get married twice now. What do they call that when they go get married again like 20 years later? They renew their vows. That's where we read this passage. And if I reduce it to that, uh, we're going to have a problem. But if I continue to keep this passage of what love's is, love is before me, I guarantee for years to come it's going to continue to kick my hind parts. And yet... For the sake of our unity as a church, both here and universally, 
And for the sake of our witness to the watching world, we cannot stop looking into the mirror of passages like this, of lists like it, of laying it before us and saying, God, this is what your word says love is. This is what your word says my love should be. God, show me where it isn't. Show me where my love is not your love. Show me the places where my patience is lacked, where the kindness of my speech or of my actions has not reflect your kindness, where I have rejoiced in the, in the evil of this world instead of the beauty of who you are and what you've called me to. In all of the ways in which this list says, in all the ways Scripture uh, more fully defines love for us, we need to keep that before us, church. And I realize that we all kind of live... Um, I think I think we're growing in our in our sense of our need for community, of our sense of of genuine connection and love for one another. But the truth is that again, because of our culture, because of our garage door up, garage door closes, leave me alone on the weekends type mentality, it's very easy for us to say I love my brother without actually really knowing them or without actually being in their lives. And yet that's what the world does. And so as we continue to press into community, there are going to be places and spaces that get uncovered where you realize, whoa, my love is really lacking. Because relationship is that is that refiner's fire that God uses to show us what his love is and where our love lacks. And so we cannot think that we can be distant or cut off from our brother and think that our love is going to look like God's love because God's love draws near to us. It comes to us. It searches us out. And so we need to be drawing near to one another in genuine fellowship and community. And in that, we are going to see ways that we can love and ways in which His Spirit convicts us where we really do not love as He does. And we take those before the throne of grace and we say, God, forgive me, cleanse me, empower me to love as you love. Church, this is so important. Think of Jesus' words in uh, John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, speaking to his disciples, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Just by this, the world is going to look in at Harbor Shores Church and know that Jesus resides here, that the Holy Spirit is present here. That means before they check out our church website or our doctrinal statement or any of those things, they're going to walk in here and they're going to see me and Matt Mitchell. They're going to see me and Rob Blair. They're going to see, oh boy, me and Chris. We've got to work on that. They are going to see the ways in which we love each other and they are going to be able to smell, to taste, to sense the very presence of the one true God and know that this is a place where he chooses to reside and it's going to stem from the way in which we love one another. And so we cannot minimize this passage. We cannot leave it for weddings or re-weddings. But instead, we have to keep it ever before it and allow the Spirit to do through it what only He can do. To show us the ways where pride abounds. To show us where unkindness or or disinterest or, or hatred resides. Yes, He gave us this text to show us the beauty of who He is and why we can confidently come to Him time and time again when we fail. But He also gave it to us so that we can look at it as one looks in a mirror 
and see the ways in which we reflect him and see the ways in which we need him to empower us to reflect him better. Because by that, the world will know that we are his. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love for us that uh, truly does um, cover us, that bears with us, that, that, that believes for us, that uh, finds its hope in you and, and endures until the end. God, your love is so real because it flows from who you are. And God, I pray that our love for one another would flow from our love for you. God, that you would first show us the beauty of uh, just how you have first loved us and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, by the teaching of your word, that you would convict us in love, that you would show us in your gentleness, by your truth, the ways in which we have allowed the world's definition of love to infiltrate the way in which we love as a church. God, we know that if we love as the world loves, there will only be hate and confusion flowing from our churches. And yet, if we love one another as you love, then the world will look in and it will see you and it will desire something different than what it's always seen in the world around them. Do a work in us that only you can do. We pray it in Jesus' name.